0: Did you hear about that research where scientists were developing ways of building concrete on the moon and Mars using human blood and urine that feel a little ghoulish to you? Well, don't worry. The scientists have come back around and they've got a version that I think you'll find a lot more palatable using potato starch to make a kind of concrete that is actually much stronger than traditional concrete, and yet can be used with relatively simple resources that you could send to the Moon or Mars, maybe even grow potatoes on Mars, like in The Martian. So my guest today is Dr. Alan Roberts. He is with the University of Manchester, and he is the principal investigator on the team that is developing these different kinds of bio-formed building materials that can be used off Earth, and it's a fascinating conversation. And we talk about some of the implications for the future of manufacturing with bioadjacent materials. It's a very interesting conversation. So here's the interview. So I think about the Martian, where uh, you know Mark Watney is stuck on Mars, and he's got to grow potatoes to survive. Little does he realize he could just be building himself new habitats with all of his potatoes.
1: Yeah, yeah, precisely. Um, and also, funny you should mention The Martian, because the way that film starts, um, you know, there's that disaster. A piece of, like, debris kind of impales him. And the reason he survives is his blood uh, essentially scabs, and it and it seals a temporary right Uh, hole in his in his space too and that was it wasn't like the inspiration behind like the initial work the blood stuff but it was just interesting that he touched upon that as well
0: yeah so i mean give give me an idea of what your background is how did you find your way into trying to make building material out of out of various coagulants (laughs)
1: So, yeah it's quite a convoluted story my background is chemistry and then i did a phd in materials chemistry and electro, and electro electrochemical storage so like lithium ion batteries and super and stuff and i didn't really like the uh battery electrical uh, electrochemistry side of things so then i pivoted and then i ended up with my first kind of research position working at the interface of uh, materials and biotechnology Uh, And essentially, we were collaborating with some um, synthetic biologists. And they were producing spider silk proteins for us. And my role was turning that into fibers. So we were making synthetic spider silk, essentially. Uh, we found that quite a tough project. It was quite difficult to uh, make a high volume, uh, to make a lot of of, 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 uh, fibers. Uh, So then after that, we pivoted into making glues, so adhesives, spider silk-based glues, essentially. And what we found just through a random control experiment um, was that a protein from cow blood called bovine serum albumin was a surprisingly good adhesive for glass. So it was loads better than our synthetic spider silk and any other proteins we'd also kind of made synthetically. So yeah, we designed all these kind of like fancy uh, synthetic proteins and then this random, basically the cheapest protein you can buy from like the supplier was better. So we were like, what's going on? But also like, it was really, at the time, it was really annoying because it's like, that's your control experiment. It's supposed to, you know, ideally have like a low baseline to show how much better yours is. And um, so it was a surprising result. So we were scratching our heads a bit. And, um, yeah, we did a bit of background searching, literature searching, and found that blood had historically been used as like a binder, like a glue. And um, so we thought, well, what else can we do with this? And we thought, um, well, if we can stick glass together, it should also be able to stick sand together because glass and sand are chemically equivalent uh, silicon dioxide uh, so we did a quick experiment and we found that worked and that, that was um that was really interesting so now it's more of a, a bio concrete biocomposite type material rather than a glue and um, and then we thought how can we make this more exciting and then i think i was just watching a youtube video i, I don't know whose it was maybe it was yours or something
0: maybe, maybe one of mine yeah, yeah yeah
1: could have been um but it mentioned that um moon dust and mars dust is also about 50 percent Sand or silica. Yeah. So I thought, wow, if it sticks sand together, maybe there's enough sand in Moon Mars dust to stick together Moon Mars dust. Uh, so I did the experiment, got really excited because it worked, just a quick kind of escaping experiment. Then I looked at the literature so the scientific literature which you're supposed to do first before you rush into experiments i did it after rushing to the experiments because i was too excited Uh, but i found someone had done exactly that before so david david loftus um had literally done the bovine serum albumin with moon dust and mars dust and they again kind of just picked this protein because it was like the cheapest one from the supplier and it's used for all sorts of like experiments where you just need some random protein um but then the kind of extra kind of step i made and i think it's because i was working in with loads of like biotechnologist people like I, that's not my background but because i was immersed in it the leap i made was well if this protein from bovine seal albumin works then surely the same protein from human blood should work so human seal malbumin and um, so yeah that's what we then tested and it's, it's almost in the identical protein because we're, we're mammals so it doesn't diff- change uh, very much and that worked And that was interesting because obviously, we're not going to be able to send cows to space anytime soon. That's just not feasible. But humans are going to be present by definition on any kind of crewed mission. And so it was like an interesting kind of concept of considering humans as like an in situ resource. Uh, But also, there's there's quite a bit of work that goes into looking at biotechnology. So, bringing like a bioreactor to the moon and Mars to get it to like synthetically produce, you know, your spider silk proteins or some other type of adhesive protein. Uh, But that would take quite a lot of mass. You know, you've got the whole kind of mass of the bioreactor. You've got to fit all the spiders. Yeah, precisely. Um, But if instead you just took a couple of extra humans and considered us as a bioreactor, we actually produce this protein um, quite rapidly. Uh, We're making, I think it's between 12 and 25 grams of it per day. So if you consider us as a bioreactor, we're really efficient. Your liver is just constantly making this protein and breaking it down. And essentially, yeah, you can tap that off. Uh, so it's not giving blood, you're, you're essentially just giving your blood plasma, all the kind of like blood cells and important parts of your blood can go back in your body. Uh, so still, it was still kind of like a, a thought experiment um, gone a bit wild, but it did have like a little bit of like feasibility. But right. yeah, that's kind of so, how I got into it.
0: And, and I guess like, like explain from a material science perspective, why is building material on the Moon or Mars tricky? To get something that can that can do the job, build you structures. Yes,
1: yeah, so essentially you need a binder. You need something to stick together the moon dust, the Mars dust. Uh, the only al- the only other alternative to that is to sinter the materials, which is basically to melt it or bring it to almost the materials melting point. So if you get the moon as Mars, just heat it to nearly its melting point. It will fuse together and that's called sintering, but that will take loads of energy. So if it takes loads of energy, we're gonna need loads more solar panels or nuclear reactors or whatever our energy option is. Um, so yeah, the other option from aside from sintering or, or melting into like a lava and casting into bricks is to make or bring some kind of binder. Um, and, Yeah, so you basically just need some some kind of glue to stick it all together. And it's tricky because the Moon and Mars doesn't have infrastructure. So, you know, you can't just pop down to, um, you know, your local builders merchant and buy like a sack of cement, which is, you know, the kind of conventional binder you'd use to to stick together aggregate to make concrete on Earth. Um, And there are kind of technology options, which essentially are producing a a Martian or, or lunar equivalent to cement. But these have drawbacks, so they're generally quite high energy processes. So you have the same issue with needing loads more energy generation um, equipment. Uh, But also they can depend on certain kind of like sparse mineral deposits. So if you have to send like uh, a digger or... you know, like a, a lorry to like transport kind of um, raw kind of like materials from a quarry on the on the moon and Mars that adds loads of extra mass complexity to the mission. And, you know, if those things break down, you need like backup systems. So really you want to be, you'd either want to take all the binder with you, which isn't ideal because it adds a lot of mass. So ideally right. you'd want to be producing it and you'd want to be producing it locally on site, at the site of your habitat. And um, So when you kind of think of those constraints, then it does limit you to, um, yeah, things that you'd you'd basically be doing anyway or producing anyway or producing on site. Um, But yeah, you basically just need to get some kind of like glue or binder Mm -hmm. meant to stick together the aggregate to form, yeah, concrete like material.
0: And and your original research, and I'm I'm sure most people who are watching this are are quite familiar, because I think it was, you know, I think a lot of it got a lot of press, I guess, for its sort of ghoulish um, Mm -hmm. aspect to it, that the astronauts would be regularly uh, donating blood and urine to to uh, feed the bioreactors that are generating the building material. And, you know, I'm sure there's some kind of sci fi horror uh, Mm -hmm. book based on this uh, coming out any day now. But. The most recent story, and the one that I really want to focus on, is that you proposed using potato starch. And so, explain sort of what are the benefits of potato starch, and how did it how did it work out as a binding agent?
1: Yeah. So, one of the main drawbacks of the the blood method is well, the, the number one priority is going to be keeping the su- the crew safe and healthy so if we're Insane. tapping their blood, <laughs> yeah if we're tapping their blood it's not really ideal from a well-being point of view um so we thought well what else can we use other than blood um so we started looking at um egg white so chicken egg white um is a very similar protein they're called albumins and essentially when chickens form the egg. They're basically just like filtering their blood to make like uh, an egg, so it's kind of gross. It's, so it's an advertisement for for Peter right there. But yeah. but um, it's historically being used as a glue and a binder, um, chicken egg white. Um, and then we went from that to thinking, also I think one of my friends suggested, well, have you tried the vegan alternative to chicken egg white, which is um, aquafaba. So if you've ever opened a can of chickpeas and drained away the gross water, Um, that is used by vegans as an egg white substitute um, to make like meringues and like cakes and stuff. Uh, So then we started investigating that. Uh, In parallel, we kind of got looking into like what was historically used as like glues and binders and if there was anything else that could be used. And that's when we came across starch-based glues. So um, yeah, and, and gluten as well from wheat. So the Romans used to use, wheat paste glues and we still use it for like sticking up wallpaper and stuff. Uh, in fact, the word glue and gluten have like a common origin in, like Roman in Latin or something. And um, so we had like a few of these options and we scoped out a few of them. And then we found, yes, yeah, starch um, worked quite well. And yeah, starch has been used as, it as, still used as like paste in, in schools. You know, the kids have like uh, starch basically, that's why if, if you eat paste as a kid and, In school, it's not going to do any harm because it's all like bio-based. And then, yeah, so we started looking at starch. And the the big advantage of starch over the other options is it's a carbohydrate rather than a protein. Um, And that basically means it doesn't have um, significant nitrogen in it. It's basically just carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. And that makes it a lot more feasible to produce because you don't need to. I mean, there is trace amounts of nitrogen in the Martian atmosphere. But you'd need to fix that uh, you can fix it biologically uh, with plants or the the bacteria that kind of attach to the the root nodules of plants but if you can just avoid use to use nitrogen then it would be better so that's why we kind of honed in on um starch as a binder uh, and then we yeah we did some experiments got quite excited and then i did the thing again where i was like Ooh, better just check to see if anyone else has done this and we found Yeah, again, someone else had done something very similar, um, but it wasn't for Moon and Mars construction. So they call it corncrete, C-O-R-N-crete. Right.
0: I've heard about that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And they use cornstarch as a binder. It's quite interesting what they did, actually. So instead of making it into a paste and just mixing it together and then just drying it to harden, they mix the powder, the powdered cornstarch, the powdered sand together, added some water and then they microwave it and then that kind of causes it to gel in the presence of all the 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 particles and and that means you can essentially get much higher concentrations because you don't need it to form like a a paste um but anyway yeah so we we thought that's really interesting and the the one problem they highlighted was water sensitivity so if it gets wet it (laughs) basically undoes all the kind of bonding and Yes, right. like, yeah, if you get your, your wallpaper wet, then the, the wall, you can peel the wallpaper off, right? And so they highlighted that as like a drawback. Uh, but then I thought, well, that's not going to be an issue on the moon and Mars because it's never going to rain in a million years, literally. Um, so then I thought, okay, well, let's investigate this a bit further. Um, and the first thing we did was, yeah, then we just did like a systematic investigation. So we didn't want to limit ourselves just to like cornstalk. We wanted to test different types of like starches and starches from different plants and even different like breeds and varieties differ quite a bit. Uh, so we screened all these and we found potato starch worked better. So we stopped calling it our, our variation. We didn't call it corncrete. We called it starcrete because starch concrete rather than corn. So
0: great. And space. So great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like the name. So, so how did it perform?
1: Yeah. So it performed, performed really well. Um, Initially, when we started in the experiments, uh, I I basically, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to reproduce um, the concrete very well because I kind of like just do things my own way. Uh, so I didn't get super high strength out of the concrete stuff. But then when I screened all the other starches, the potato starch performed much better. So it is at 17 megapascals in terms of compressive strength compared to- And what does
0: that compare to just like traditional concrete?
1: Uh, so an ordinary brick is about 20 megapascals in compressive strength. And then the previous researchers had got concrete up to 30, so it was, it was surprisingly strong. Ordinary concrete is, is usually uh, in the region of, uh, I think it's like 20 to 41 megapascals. So, And then anything above 41 megapascals is considered high-strength concrete. And um, so when we found potato starch worked quite well, just side-by-side experiments with cornstarch and other starches, and then we did a systematic, we took it quite seriously, the the optimization, and we screened lots of different additives that we'd potentially get in the moon and Mars, things like urea from urine. Uh, I even used my own spit as, a, as an additive. And um, So we screened all these things, and then we eventually managed to get it up to 91 megapascal. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, it was, like, surprisingly strong. Like, it, it overloaded, like, the machine, like, several times. Like, you have to, when you're testing the machine, you put in, uh, it's got a load cell, um, which is kind of like, yeah, what you expect the the maximum strength to be. And it kept like overloading it. So we had to get like more powerful ones. And it just kind of, yeah, blew me away. Yeah.
0: But that sounds a lot more efficient than having the astronauts eat potatoes and then harvest their blood. You just use the potatoes. It feels like from a just a first principles, that's a much more efficient use of, of solar energy. Than, than kind of going through that that first run. Um, what is the sort of a quantity and amount? Like, let's say that we're growing potatoes and we're able to grow a sack full of potatoes. How much building material can we create with that?
1: Yeah, so I did some back of the envelope, envelope calculations. And if you had a sack full of dehydrated potatoes, so potatoes are about 80% water. So if you dried them out, and had a sack full a 25 kilogram sack full. Uh, about 80% of that is starch. And then the rest is other parts of the potato. So that, and that's enough starch to make, uh, it was, I think it was about half a ton of concrete. So it's like 200 and something bricks worth of material. So it goes quite a long way, but it's yeah. also worth mentioning that we optimized for strength and we kind of, uh, we kind of over engineered it just because strength was was quite a cool thing to optimize for, it's going to get people's interest. But in reality, if you're doing it in real life or if you're actually applying this technology, you wouldn't really need it to be that strong. So, you might NASA might decide, oh, 20 megapascals is completely fine for any application. Also, on the magical. moon
0: under low gravity,
1: precisely, yeah, yeah. So, the gravity is weaker in the moon and Mars, so you don't actually need it that strong, and um, so. We haven't actually done this study, but something interesting to do if it was again kind of taken seriously would be to optimize for uh, minimizing the binder. So whatever target strength uh, is the minimum requirement, say twenty megapascals or something, optimizing it to minimize the amount of starch. Uh, so yeah, you could potentially make that starch go much much further, which would be which would be great.
0: So then, like, let's imagine sort of the, the near future where the astronauts are on the moon, they are expanding the base, what would their facility look like, do you figure, for them to be able to start with, I don't know, would they, would they have a greenhouse and then they're a bioreactor? How would you sort of see this process being matured?
1: yeah yeah so absolutely we'd start on like the moon before kind of you know to test ride technologies before going to mars and i think it will be i mean initially when we go up to the moon it would be a bit more like the apollo program we bring everything we need um and then we'll be testing technologies but eventually we'll definitely be want to want to move to a more kind of circular system so um have like a greenhouse uh artificial lighting kind of hydroponics uh type system uh where we're growing vegetables to feed the astronauts so we don't need to keep replenishing with with fresh supplies from from Earth and that would also produce oxygen which would be great and if it's also if we're producing like a surplus and more than we need to feed the astronauts and we have like a surplus of starch then that could then be used to bind together the regolith, the the moon dust, and then expand the base. Uh, So I I see it as like a a stepwise progression. So, yeah, initially, it'd be relatively high cost because we're going to have to be, you know, we'll still be dependent largely on the Earth or very largely on the Earth, and then slowly kind of move towards um, self-sustainability. And then once we kind of test and validated those technologies in the lunar environment, then go to Mars, where it will be a lot riskier the, the chance of things breaking down, you're gonna to have to be a lot more kind of confident in your systems in, in that regard. So that's how I think I can see it going.
0: And you said that nitrogen is something that is fairly tricky to find on Mars. But you know, I'm assuming you're needing carbon atoms, you're needing oxygen, there's plenty of oxygen. But um, what would you think is the limiting element for you to be able to get your hands on to be able to produce this at any scale?
1: So on the moon, um, yeah. So, so the Martian atmosphere has trace amounts of nitrogen. I think it's like one to two percent. Um I, I don't think it will be a huge issue because especially if you're using starch concrete, because we're not um, locking that away in the building material. But you do need enough for the plants to function properly and obviously the humans to function properly. But once it's in the habitat, you know, you're recycling it. The human urine will get you know broken down, reclaimed by the plants, and any kind of more there's enough available in the Martian atmosphere for that to be fixed by plants. So certain plants can take uh yeah dinitrogen from the atmosphere um and then via kind of like these um um orga- microorganisms that which live in the root nodules kind of fix that so I don't think nitrogen is going to be a huge limiting factor on, on the in the martian environment. Uh, if you were using a a protein-based binder uh that would have a lot of nitrogen in it and also other kind of like rarer elements uh phosphorus and and and, and sulfur and well not not so much sulfur in the marsh environment but um essentially it's yeah nitrogen and, and other rare elements and that would be locked away in the building material which wouldn't be ideal mm. but um yeah i think water will be a big issue but compared to other technology options which also use quite high quantities of water. The starch concrete, although there's water locked up in the molecules of the starch itself, the uh, curing, the hardening process is dehydration based. So you you can recover all that water, uh, but your water is going to be very scarce anyway. So I think possibly water would be the the limiting factor.
0: Right. And but you're able to pull obviously the carbon that you need out of the atmosphere, you're able to pull the nitrogen that you need out of the atmosphere. There's plenty of oxygen mixed in with the regolith itself. And so it's just a matter of getting that water to be able to complete the complete the process. Now you looked at potatoes, but I find all pathways lead to cyanobacteria when it comes to space. So is there an algae or bacterial way to to get at a similar outcome do you think
1: that's so interesting you mentioned that um yeah so we've actually in the middle of developing a material we're calling it blue moon cream because (laughs) it's bright blue this one isn't using lunar regolith this is using calcium carbonate but essentially it's the same principle and when you grow cyanobacteria one of the main protein components is um, it's called phycocyanin, and it's essentially the blue equivalent of chlorophyll. So it's present in quite high abundance in the in the cyanobacteria. Uh, so yeah, this is from spirulina, um, and yeah, we found that it behaves in a very similar way, or you can get it to behave in a very similar way. So like a glue, a binder for lunar or Martian regolith. And um, so, yeah, I think that is very feasible. And that's something we're currently working on. Uh, it's currently going through the optimization process. So hopefully in a few months, it'll be out.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, and it's just amazing to me, like with cyanobacteria, like they're, they've tested it on the exterior of the International Space Station and then brought it back to Earth, but also brought it back to Martian conditions. And it was able to continue growing. It's ready to go on Mars and... I can just imagine it's a lot simpler and easier to work with than attempting to make a little farm and and grow your potatoes in the soil. You just grow the stuff in a bioreactor and out comes whatever raw ingredients that you need.
1: Totally great and the other well there's a couple of other big advantages for cyanobacteria. Um they produce large amounts of lipids or oils so mm. they could be made into like a biodiesel or uh potentially refuel your Martian ascent vehicle if you're if you're creating you know high energy um right. oils essentially but also there's loads of work in in engineering uh cyanobacteria to do to lots of biomanufacturing so you can get them to manufacture things that you need so for example if uh you've got like a crew on Mars, the, the next resupply from Earth is, you know, a year away or something, and then someone falls ill and they need a very specific medicine uh, and you haven't brought that with you because, you know, it's just too, you can't take every medicine with you. It's just not feasible. It might have, like, a, a certain shelf life. Um, you could, you know, um, scientists on Earth, like NASA or wherever, could uh, develop, like, a, a pathway, um, a DNA um, enzymatic pathway to produce that, um molecule the drug that you need to feed to give the astronaut and then um the astronauts potentially you know they would have that system to engineer the the cyanobacteria and then grow and produce that medicine they need when when they need it but also uh, lots of other types of um molecules can can be produced that's what we focus on in in our in my work in manchester engineering organisms including cyanobacteria to, to make all sorts of useful materials and chemicals and i'm thinking um Yeah, space applications could be great for like spearheading that technology and kind of get it um, viable before it, um, you know, is commercially viable on Earth.
0: Yeah, so now, I mean, now we're going to get into the crazy part of the conversation. And I just want to let any of the public relations officer at Alice University aware. We are just speculating. We're just dreaming up science fiction books here. So don't worry. No one is going to sort of take responsibility for any of the ideas that we're about to talk about. Um, But you can go to, like, you can actually, like, mail order DNA chunks that you you give them the exact code and then they'll send you back a little piece of dna and then you can patch it into so can you imagine a time where the astronauts are they're just getting sent up an upload from from nasa saying print this out in your in your dna sequencer and then inject it into the cyanobacteria and in a couple of weeks you should have as as much acetaminophen as you need
1: yeah yeah precisely i think that is is a very viable way of doing things uh yeah so scientists on earth uh, with nasa yeah designing the, the the dna sequence to produce you know the whatever molecules you need uh emailing it to the the scientists um on mars or or, or 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 whatever and then um yeah trans uh, transforming it i think is, is the correct term um into the organisms and then those organisms will produce whatever you need at the time and that's going to make things a lot simpler uh it will reduce the amount of initial launch mass you need to take to mars which makes things cheaper um, and i think it would just be a great technology for nasa to you know spearhead or, or any space agency to kind of get to a point where it's viable by throwing money at it because that type of technology would be really useful on earth as well
0: well so what are the limits what do you think are the like assuming that we have a moonshot program to attempt to develop this kind of technology and make it very feasible and repeatable what do you think are sort of the practical biological limits of what could be created by life
1: uh yeah that's a good question so my background isn't isn't biology so I might not be the best person to, to yeah, answer this yeah. question I think there is a very kind of high limit a high ceiling so life is incredible it does all sorts of things and we're only just kind of scratching the surface at the moment in terms of like biotechnology and um I think we we should look to nature to see what kind of crazy molecules nature has made um and if we're constrained to life and living organisms, it does kind of put certain limits on the on the chemistry you can access. And um, so, for example, it would be quite difficult um, to make I don't know, like an advanced ceramic, for example, with a with a biological system, just because um, life doesn't operate in high the high temperatures you need to to access that type of chemistry. Um, and that's why we have, you know, seashells, for example, are made of calcium carbonate and uh, a biopolymer. Um, they're, they're very tough, they're very strong, especially considering they're made of calcium carbonate. Uh, so nature does its best from, you know, its limited resources and its constraints, having to work at you know low temperatures and minimal pH swings and, and ambient pressure and everything. Um, so I think we'll be limited by what we can see nature doing fundamentally. However, I think there is a huge kind of area of like hybridizing um, yeah. human engineering and natural stuff. And I think that's going to be a huge area in the future. And the possibilities there are like crazy. So if you imagine like an advanced technical ceramic um, formed in a way that nature kind of produces shells. So nature kind of stacks up kind of little platelets of the calcium carbonate and with like a, a mortar together and that makes it very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you use calcium carbon, which isn't very strong. If that was made with an advanced technical ceramic, we could potentially have a really strong hybrid material, which kind of bridges the natural and and human synthetic kind of um, domains.
0: Yeah, like I guess imagine if you gave cyanobacteria a kiln and said, make whatever you want, but also use this kiln if you need or this lathe <laughs> And then, and then get back to the whatever the outputs are, and then do more biological activity on that. And Prec- and so I think that's that's a really fascinating idea. Like like life just at no point did anything evolve to run something at at a thousand degrees. But Precisely, it could.
1: Precisely, yeah. yeah. And if you look at something like spider silk, spider silk is essentially like nature's Kevlar, um, and it has to give this crazy engineering in the bioengineering and the spiders like silk duct to to make spider silk and then humans come along we make kevlar and we have to dissolve our kevlar in 100 sulfuric acid so super corrosive heat it to like 100 degrees celsius and um, and put it under very high pressures and nature's found like very intricate ways to to kind of overcome these problems be yeah, precisely if we can kind of like combine what we can do well as humans and the engineering we can like access and what nature does well, I think there's going to be some really interesting uh, concepts coming out from from that from that area.
0: What do you think that some of this technology has in applications here on Earth? I mean, we're you know, obviously we're talking about this. This could change everything. But but back to the sort of the more the more building materials. I mean, does your Starcrete melt outside in the when it rains as well?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think. Yeah, This kind of uh, technology exploration of bio based materials could have a big impact on uh, sustainability. So, yeah, concrete is a huge kind of polluter. Eight percent of global carbon dioxide emissions uh, arise from concrete, and we need to develop um, alternatives to that. And if we look at nature, you know, nature's overcome that problem um, seashells, pearl, tooth enamel, very strong, durable materials. Yeah, wood fiber. Moment- yeah yeah precisely uh, at the moment the star creep um, we've developed is isn't water resistant essentially so it wouldn't be useful on earth if it got rained on it goes soft and it breaks and your building would collapse it's 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 not useful uh, in that regard but it's never going to rain on the moon and mars Um, so it's not an issue there which is why it was an interesting application Uh but then yeah so there's there's ways um to potentially overcome that water sensitivity issue Uh, So I think that's going to be the interesting kind of like next step. And also kind of you have the moonshot project, you come up with these crazy ideas. But then the really interesting part is when you translate that technology back down to Earth. And that's kind of what we're going to do next. So we do have some ideas of overcoming the water sensitivity issue. Um, So, yeah, for example, one thing we're looking at is um, looking at cooking chemistry. So it's called the Maillard reaction. But if you heat the StarCrete with some proteins, to like the temperature you'd like bake bread you essentially get like a cross-linking reaction so you could potentially get like a cross-linked resin network a bit like um yeah like the 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 resin matrix that you form like carbon fibers in not not to that degree but hopefully to an extent where um it's stable enough that it resists you know water undoing the the bonding so yeah we're looking at things like that and i think that's going to be quite an interesting area going forward
0: i mean I think one of the things that I find really interesting about this kind of work is, is the constraint, the constraints as you're sort of thinking about like, how do I build this stuff on the moon or Mars, and you figure out you and you're sort of locked in with these constraints, and it narrows down the options that you have available to you to allow you to move down pathways. But then it turns out that process opens up your imagination to new pathways that do have applications well beyond what you're originally thinking
1: yeah yeah totally i think um sometimes it helps to have constraints that's when you have to be innovative if you you know are very constrained with what you can do you know for example building on, on the moon or building on the mars then you have to be really kind of innovative you have to think outside the box and um, and that's how you come up with with good new ideas which you could then you know explore and maybe translate back down to earth is you know yeah sometimes if you're spoiled for choice in terms of things you can work on or systems or uh one interesting one with the star Creek one is, is additives so if we were kind of purely developing on earth then you know we have a huge huge number of potential additives we can add in uh, to make it better But if you're thinking about, okay, if this is going to be built on the moon and Mars, we're hugely constrained by what we can add that could potentially improve the uh, performance. And one thing we looked at, um, which is kind of a crazy thing, was human saliva. So basically, spit. And um, essentially, your spit has an enzyme in it, amylase, that chops up starch and um, basically makes it into a more active form. So from a very kind of like um bundled up form where it isn't very active this enzyme chops it up and releases the the biopolymers and makes it stickier and so we looked at this the very interesting thing is it's it's also been used historically and is still done in like aboriginal tribes uh, to make a very strong adhesive so a very strong glue um, and one thing that used to be done in like the Middle Ages is um, if you're making arrows, one of the ways you would stick the feathers onto your arrowhead, so like fletching, is you chew up a bulb from a, a bluebell um, and then make it into like a, a sticky glue by action of an enzyme in your mouth. They obviously didn't know anything about enzymes back then, so this is kind of part, partially speculating as to why the amylase works. Um, and that chops up the... the um, starch and and activates it makes into like a glue and then they yeah they they make a very strong glue that would hold feathers on you know when you're shooting through an arrow so it works very well so yeah because we had the constraints we kind of thought what other kind of human bodily fluids can we potentially add to make it better we came across this uh so yeah the the idea of potentially using enzymes that we produce or could engineer that could make it a better material is quite interesting And if, if we didn't have that constraint we might never have kind of thought or had to think about going down that avenue.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating work. Well, I'll let you, when you build your first brick on the moon, will you let us know?
1: <laughs> we'll do. Yeah. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, thank you very much, and and good luck with your research. Thank you much, Rosa. Cheers. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word, there are no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at universetoday.com newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com podcast, or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon, helps us stay independent, and keep ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the Interstellar Adventurers, and the Galaxy Wanderers. And a special thanks to David Giltonen, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew M. Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.